Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You ever feel like you're your biggest enemy? Like you, the, everything about your faith is set up to lead you forward, yet for some reason you continue to hold yourself back? Well, that shows that there is in some people's lives... A failure to fully comprehend the full knowledge of God and the goal should be of a Christian life to shed light into those that are stuck in darkness. To show them that, yes, while indeed you could be your biggest enemy, Christ has overcome the world. And that brings us into all sorts of conversations about Satan and what the Satan was and so forth. However, this is a morning show. So here on Bible Beacon Broadcast, I, Pastor Michael Miano, will be your host for the next hour or so, and we have a special guest joining the show. Please be prayerfully ready, take out your Bible, and be ready for an amazing show. Because I'll tell you what, while you might be your biggest enemy, and I have seen that in my own life, that sometimes I am my biggest enemy, Christ has overcome the world. Never stop. 
tell you what, I have an eschatology that shows me that I am victorious over anything or whoever the devil might be. So uh, praise God. And you know what, I believe that when you develop an understanding of God that shows that the devil has no power over you, that you become victorious and you really see that nothing in this world can stop you if you cleave to Christ and you continue to run the race with uh, confident assurance. And actually, that's what we're going to be talking about on the show. I, again, am Pastor Michael Miano. I'm your host for the next hour here on Bible Beacon Broadcast. I thank you for tuning in, and I'm excited to have my guest come on this morning. And we're going to be talking about what exactly that confident assurance is. What We're going to be detailing atonement. And again, I want to remind everybody that this is a morning show, so uh, it's not going to be all that deep and... Uh, you know, I, I'm on my first cup of coffee, so I can't even begin to think about all the details of atonement and so forth. However, I do imagine we'll have a great show and um, so forth. So with that said, I want to open in prayer, give you a scripture reading, and share some of the insights that I hope will be uh, drawn out of this morning's show. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word, Lord, that we would continue to grow closer to you through your word, Lord, that we would understand your word is not just simply the words that we read in scripture, Lord, but your word is indeed the truth. Your word is the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. And I I thank you for all that we have in and through Jesus, Lord, all that we have in and through your spirit and your word that reveals truth unto us, that sheds light in the darkness, Lord God. We lift up today's show. We pray that it is glorifying to you, Lord God, as I've uh, Endeavor to walk worthy, to study, to show myself approved, and really put this topic up for question. That way we can have clarity on what it is that gives us confident assurance in regards to our relationship with you, Lord. Lord, we thank you again for your spirit that reveals all truth to us, Lord. And we give you all our praise, and in through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, thank you for tuning in. Last week, I kind of set up a uh, basic format of what I wanted to detail this week, and really what it boils down to is you have these two camps within preterism. You know, and last week, I kind of harped on the futurist perspective. However, this week, Paul Rakowitz is going to join me, and Paul Rakowitz is a full preterist. You know, he understands the coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the dead all being past prophecies, which is an amazing thing, thank God. And... uh However, what I've noticed in discussion with, you know, Paul Rakowitz and even sometimes Charles Meeks and, uh, you know, different um, wise men within preterism is that there is a distinction in our views of atonement. And, you know, we obviously know from Ed Stevens and Kurt Simmons that um, and many others that there's a, uh, a disagreement in regards to resurrection, even in regards to when the law ended. Did the law end at the cross? Did the law end in AD 70? And, you know, Don Preston and Kurt Simmons have kind of drawn this out in their debates and uh, Don brought it out in his book, Torah to Tell Us. And, you know, that's how I've developed my view of uh, atonement, is by understanding the full comprehensive story of the redemption, you know, redemption reality. You might want to check out uh, Larry Siegel's article, Redemption Realities, at TFC Magazine. Um, I, I've actually been endeavoring through it for a couple of days now, and it's, it's amazing. Larry Siegel always brings out great insights um, from the word. You know, while I might not agree with him on everything, while I might not agree with any man on anything, indeed, we can find the points that unify us and glorify God for those. And that's what we're endeavoring to do this morning. Um, Paul Rakowitz, from what I understand, holds to what he calls a historic understanding of the church, that atonement was indeed an, in the full at the cross. And I know he uses the phrase, uh, it is finished, telestai, to... Um, further show that everything was finished at the cross. And, you know, I have a lot of questions for that, and I'm hoping uh, this morning, well, I know this morning he will shed some clarity on that for us. And while it's not my goal to come into agreement, I don't know if we will leave today's show coming into agreement. However, we will unify on glorifying Christ 
and we will unify on continuing to search the scriptures and study to show ourselves approved. Amen. So with that, I want to open with a reading from First Peter. I'm going to read First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through, I'm going to read up to verse 13. Here we read. In this, now remember, this is Peter writing to the, the scattered uh, believers, the, the, what he says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So there we have our uh, audience relevance. We know who he's writing to. Continuing again in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. And full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that's where we're going to... Uh, Actually, I'm going to continue. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to continue this morning. Keep going into verse 17 and throughout this uh, chapter. If you address as father the one who is impartially, one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervent love one another, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, I read that passage to you this morning because I believe that's going to be a, a major part of our discussion, is what exactly is the hope of Israel? What exactly is the hope of a believer? What is the gospel? What were they seeking salvation from? You see, as I read through First Peter here, it's talking about the feudal ways of your forefathers, speaking to these uh, scattered Israelites, and uh, their forefathers obviously was the Mosaic Law. And they were clinging to this. And I believe that in AD 70, the confident assurance of atonement, salvation, redemption was given to the believer, 
at that moment, that confident assurance when they seen the judgment and the destruction of the temple and that entire system. That system would pass away. And when that system passed away and the new came in full, was fully consummated, the believer within themselves would have been overjoyed because they knew that they now receive the salvation of their souls. So, again, this is where I'm coming from, and this is my vantage point. And I'm looking forward to uh, Paul's presentation today into these details. So I'm going to go into a quick song, and hopefully our uh, guest will be calling in, and we will be going from there. When they proposed the earth revolved around the sun and the earth wasn't flat and that Jesus had come, it was common belief that those notions were false. And to prove them true, there is always a cost. When I set out to prove preterism was wrong, some beliefs were shattered and it didn't take long. I came across truths that for years I had missed. If you honestly want to know, don't forget this. If you study the culture and the history too, if you see the old as a shadow of the new, when you look at the typology of the high priest and the 40-year at the very least, if you learn the figurative language that they all knew, stop letting tradition speak louder than truth. As you perceive passages in covenant late, an audience relevance takes you out of the fight. If you let the time statements speak for themselves, and remember, the Bible interprets itself. If you take out your presuppositions of when, all the scriptures you thought were obscure now make sense. Daniel was given prophecy for a time not near, and its fulfillment took 600 years. When Revelation was written, Jesus stood at the door. Can the time be at hand to millennia or more? The law wouldn't pass until all was fulfilled. And no more unblemished lambs are killed. If he hasn't returned, then we're still under law. And the strength of the sting of death is installed. The gospel was preached to the whole world at that time. They wouldn't finish going through the cities in Palestine. Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah to come. And foretold that John would remain till it's done. When Jesus said some standing here wouldn't die, is this generation every one that goes by? And coming on clouds was a figure of speech that meant judgment, and those who had pierced him did see. Do you think that the one standing there were mistaken, for thinking he was coming in their generation? Or do you think that we're the ones who are misinformed? Let me ask, do you want to know truth or conform? Is it not strange must adopt the mindset of the very peculiar already, but not yet? It's the only way that they can explain, because they don't understand the nature of the last thing. What's the nature of the new heavens and earth? Perhaps we should see what the old ones were first. If you understand the nature, you'll understand the time. I know it's a shift of the old paradigm. It's like telling the Jews who still await their king that they've missed all the wonderful things God did bring. Like them, we want something that we can observe, a visible king on a throne on the earth. Remember, his kingdom is not seen with these eyes, nor is living water that's been realized. Perhaps you've been drinking with God face to face. There's so much more to discover in this glorious age of grace. That was Millennium. You can listen to some of her videos on YouTube. She has some beautiful songs, and that was her song, God's Promises Fulfilled. Amen. So I'm going to bring up Brother Paul Rakowitz on the show, and we will begin our discussion this morning. I hope you are as excited as I. And uh, Paul, how are you? And welcome. Very good. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for having me on. 
All right, I appreciate it. it. So, yes, I can, absolutely. All right, so, Paul, I'm just going to ask you to give us a brief introduction and maybe uh, bring up the mention of, uh, you have two books, I believe, that are available at Amazon. If you could tell us briefly about both of those, and then we will get into our discussion on atonement, all right? Sure, I appreciate it. So, uh, I do have the first book I wrote, which is uh, The Pearl. And The Pearl is a look at Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 and the creation account through the eyes of the cross. And right away, that would tell you that I am not a CC believer, and I do believe in a physical creation as described in Genesis 1 through 3. At the same time, I believe that the whole story of the gospel is told in those first three chapters. So there is both the, common, <clears throat> both the combination of the physical creation and the spiritual story that we can see given there. So that's the okay. first book. And the, sec- and the second book is called The Virtuous Life, God's First and Great Commandment. And I know, Michael, you are doing some sermons on what is the Christian's life. And Amen. that book actually is a uh, book that describes exactly what God has called us to. So Hmm. the first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And amazingly, God gives us very detailed instructions about how to do that. And in essence, what he does in those instructions is he teaches us how to manage our soul so that our mind, discernment, our heart, self-control, our will, courage, soul working all together, right judgment, lives according to Christ's moral law. And when we do that, what we have is the virtuous life. That's the life unto which he calls us. And that's how we live the life that he's called us to, whether we be a futurist or a preterist or anything else. That is the first and great commandment. And everything else we believe really boils down to us getting closer and closer to that mark. So The Virtuous Hmm, Life, uh, that book goes through that whole process of defining the four cardinal virtues, understanding them through Scripture. We do a survey of Proverbs. We do an understanding of Christ's moral law. We distinguish between the natural law and that fulfillment of the natural law and Christ's moral law, and we walk through how all that works. So that's an interesting book. And then I actually have a third uh, publication, which is my spiritual fitness program. It's called the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program, which people can subscribe to. It's a subscription service at my website, www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. That's www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. And in the Spiritual Fitness Program, We connect you with God each morning and evening through readings and meditations. The meditations are based on how we take Scripture and apply them to the soul, achieve the virtuous life. And so they are designed to help us achieve dispassion. And once we get a sense of what that concept is, dispassion, we ultimately can learn to love each other always the same which is the great goal, which we find shared by God in words such as how he has his blessings pour upon the evil and the just and all that sort of thing. Understanding dispassion apart from universalism is where we end up when we're living the virtuous life. 
So that's sort of wow. the goal of all of that. Hmm, so, those sound like three great resources. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's uh, There's something there. So in preparation for today, on your uh, post that you had made about the atonement, I shared a couple of uh, things that people could go to, a couple of resources. Uh, one is on the Day of Atonement. So in my in my study, so the spiritual fitness program that I have available, it is the result of over 30 years of study, and it is the best from all of the denominations across the past 2,000 years. So it's not as though I'm suggesting that we should believe any one thing that any or everything that any one person says. I'm not suggesting we should believe everything that any one denomination says, but I'm suggesting that over the past 2,000 years, there have there are common threads of theology that we can find within each of those denominations. And at a high level, I break them into three. The first being the what we know today as the Eastern Orthodox, which was the early Greek fathers. And they created something that is magical. They created the first Christian empire, something that had never existed in humanity, an empire of Christendom came forth from the powerful faith that the early Greek fathers had. And that's the starting point. The next aspect of that is sort of the Western version of that, which we know today as the Catholic Church. And then out of that, we have what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. So those are three major uh, major distinctions between uh, the past 2000, over the past 2,000 years that we have, and discerning what is best from each of those, well, let me say that again, within each of those we find common truths, and then what we find within each of those is each of them has a certain knack at presenting a certain aspect of those truths. And so what we find in the early church is they had a marvelous knack for teaching the virtuous life. They had a marvelous knack for teaching us how to take Scripture and make it practical in our daily lives by helping us achieve the four cardinal virtues within our own soul, which was what ultimately led to the creation of that Byzantine Empire. So they have a knack of teaching what it means to have discernment. They have an act for teaching what it means to have self-control, which is containing the passions in the heart. They have an act for teaching what a willing courage looks like. And they have an act for teaching how those three work together to produce right judgment. And it's not unlike in today's world, we say that the government isn't a problem for any reason other than it's a reflection of the hearts of men. And so what we get from the early church is that teaching, which allows us to have a very practical means to change the hearts of men, to cause love to shine forth from the hearts of men. And so that's the power of the early church. They had an amazing knack for teaching how to generate in the hearts of men this virtuous life, which then would reflect itself naturally in the political realm that they would be living in. And that's what ultimately happened and what ultimately created that Byzantine Empire. So that's what they're really great at. The Catholic Church, hey, while lots of people have lots of complaints about lots of things, one thing that they did do a marvelous job on is they really recorded their faith 
in their catechism in the, at, towards the end of the last century. And that's a great document. And whether you agree with everything in there, and none of us do, and I'm not sure how many Catholics agree with everything that's in there. Hmm. The fact is they've done a marvelous job defining in great detail what they believe. And so in my book, The Virtuous Life, when I describe the four cardinal virtues, I actually go to that document and I use their descriptions because they did a great job. Now, when I hmm. teach in the in the uh, in my spiritual fitness program, when I use the meditations to teach, I don't use meditations from the Catholic Church. I use them from the early church fathers because, again, that was where they had a great knack for teaching how to apply the virtues to your own life, so that we could learn to love one another. And then the Protestants, hmm. they of course uh, have a lot of great teaching as well. And so in on your page there where you had started this discussion on the atonement invited me on, uh, I shared a couple of things from Spurgeon, and we all probably recognize that name. He did a great mm-hmm. job with defining what he understood the Day of Atonement to be and how he understood the blood sacrifice portions of the Day of Atonement, including the two goats and all those things, to be fulfilled at the cross. Now, that's a discussion in and of itself. We're not going to cover that today. We're going to cover Hebrews chapter 9. But I put that on your site so that anybody who wants to say to themselves, hey, I wonder how the Day of Atonement fits into this, then go right there, click on his two sermons that I shared, and they'll get a very good sense of what the church across the past 2,000 years has believed about the Day of Atonement. If you look into the early church fathers, they'll teach very similar things as to what Spurgeon is writing. So if you read what Spurgeon wrote on the Day of Atonement, you'll see, unlike, and Michael, this is something that you shared in the show already, I am not a preterist of the modern version. I am a preterist of an early and historic version. And so we do have differences, and I appreciate that today's call is not to try and convince either of anything. And I'm appreciative of that. So I'm simply sharing my understanding of these things and where they come from. I'm not trying to convince you or anyone else of anything. So in in this view of Spurgeon, you'll see something very different than what modern-day preterists teach about the day of the And when we get into Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to share what the church, as I understand it for 2,000 years, both in the Eastern, the Catholic, and the Protestant, all believed about Hebrews chapter 9 the majority belief across all those ages about Hebrews chapter 9. Part of what this all covers is this notion of Christ's descent into hell. So I also included on your site there a link to an article by an Orthodox bishop, I can't say his name, Hilarion Elvayev, maybe. I don't know how to say his name. <laughs> and the article is titled, Christ the Conqueror of Hell. The Descent of Christ into Hades in Eastern and Western Theological Traditions. Now, that article gives a great survey of the church's understanding of Christ's descent into hell over the past 2,000 years. So, in these two items, in Spurgeon's articles on the Day of Atonement and in this article by Bishop Valerian, you will get a sense of what the church over the past 2,000 years has believed about the Day of Atonement and how it was fulfilled at the cross, not the judgment portion, which was fulfilled 
in this fall festival, but the blood sacrifice portion. And you'll get a sense of what the church has taught over the past 2,000 years in regard to Christ's descent into hell and what he did there. In regard to that last point, Christ's descent into hell, what I would suggest to everyone is that they go onto their computer, go to Google, and type in the word anastasis. A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S, anastasis, A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S. And when you type that in, Google will produce for you a row of images. And those images are quite likely the earliest images that we have from the early church. And really this image of the anastasis and that word, those letters in English, are the Greek letters, that we know as resurrection. That's what the word means, resurrection. Those images are the earliest images from the early church, and they are their core belief regarding their faith. And in that image, what you'll see is you'll see Christ having left the cross, descending into hell, crushing the gates of hell beneath his feet, with Satan crushed beneath the gates of hell, and Christ reaching out, to those Old Testament saints and raising them from the dead, from the darkness of hell. Because remember at the fall, what really happened to them is they, their souls became captive unto Satan who had fallen from his first estate. Now, Michael, I know that this is another point of disagreement and that's okay. (laughs) What you'll see in this article is the historical teaching of the church regarding this very thing. And so people, whatever we believe today, we should have some idea of why we believe it. And we should understand where it came from. And we should understand what those before us believed and why we do or don't agree with them. This article will help take you there to understand all of that. And this image will help you see how the early church stayed connected for so long. This is their core belief. This is the core belief that built that great Byzantine empire. What's interesting about those images as well is you'll see at the top of the image, you'll see the Greek letters. And if you study what those Greek letters are, they actually are the word anastasis, which means resurrection. The early church believed that the first resurrection occurred on Good Friday. This was the core of their belief. They believed that the second resurrection was associated with the judgment in 70 AD. This was the core of their belief. What this gets to in our talk today is, to put it in very simple terms that we'd all understand, modern preterists have this sense of teaching already but not yet. And what I would suggest that I'm sharing is that in their already but not yet belief, it's a matter of degrees. In teaching the already, they don't give it enough credit. In teaching the not yet, they give it too much credit. So preterism isn't wrong in and of itself, and I don't debate the nature of preterism. What I debate is the concept of degrees giving too much to the not yet and not enough to the already, in the already but not yet concept. And that's what this is a discussion about. So if we go over to Hebrews chapter 9, in the beginning of this chapter, like... Yes, please, go ahead. 
Sorry about that. Um, before you get into Hebrews 9, I just wanted to ask two questions just to clarify some things before we get into the reading. Um, if you could just give me like a short um, definition or understanding of atonement, and also I'm just curious if you, divi- if you would divide an understanding of, let's say, sanctification and atonement or salvation and atonement. Like, Do we divide those terms? The reason I ask, and then, and then I'll be quiet, is um, I was reading through a John Noe article uh, kind of on this topic, and John Noe, he makes the point that the atonement happened fully at the cross, and then what was happening until A.D. 70 would have been the sanctification process. And I was curious if you hold to that, and then please answer those, and then let's jump into Hebrews 9. So it's hard to answer those because people have their own understanding of what sanctification is. I do feel that we are that atonement happened at the cross. And as if we recall what the Apostle Paul said, he was concerned throughout his life that he would lose his ultimate salvation. And he worked very hard every day to pursue that ultimate salvation so he didn't lose it. And I think that's what the distinction is there that's ultimately being made. When we believe we are atoned for our sin and we have access to salvation and we are saved. It's like the parable Jesus gave. Remember when he spoke of the gentleman who had many uh, spirits cast from him and then it says the house was made ready and all that sort of thing. But then what does it say? Mm-hmm. The man didn't do anything else. He didn't do any work. He didn't prepare his mind. He didn't learn anything new. And what happened? All those old things came back to him, and he was worse off than he was at the beginning. So mm-hmm. part of the concept of Scripture is we come to faith, and at that moment in time, we are saved. But then if we don't do anything else, if we don't grow on our faith, and this goes back to that virtuous life that we talked about, which the early church was so marvelous at teaching, if we don't then become virtuous, if we don't obtain discernment and self-control and courage and right judgment, then we'll end up going backwards and ending up worse off than we were. And we see that in today. How many people do you know who once were Christians who now are atheists? You, you know people like that, right? Yep. Yes, indeed. And so, so that's what really I think the issue is there. So whatever words we give to it, if you want to call it sanctification or whatever else, I don't know. But whatever words you want to put to it, I think that's in essence what's happening to us. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So getting into Hebrews 9, if we start there. Now, at the beginning of Hebrews 9, we have conversation about the temple. And once again, there is dispute over what temple this is. As I understand the early teaching and the reform teaching, that temple was the temple, the tent that Moses put up. As I understand modern-day preterists, they want to teach that that temple was the temple then standing in Jerusalem. So that in and of itself is the first thing that we have to have issue with. And that's not what I want to talk about today. I'm just pointing out that that's an issue. I want to start in Mm -hmm. verse number 8 of Hebrews chapter 9. And here we get into a conclusion. By these things, the Holy Spirit means us to understand that the way to the Holy of Holies was not yet open, that is, so long as the first tent and all that it stood for was still standing uninterrupted, which was a figure of the time then present in which, in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered and yet were incapable of cleansing the life of the worshiper. The ceremonies were concerned with food and drink, various washings, rules for bodily conduct, only intended to be valid until the time of Reformation, when Christ should establish the truth. That's where we start. 
And if that tent is Moses or if the tent is tabernacle standing there in Jerusalem, you're going to interpret different things here. Okay? So mm-hmm. we look at that, and then we say in verse 11, but now Christ has come among us, the high priest of the good things already here. Well, that immediately makes us stay, stand up and take notice that something is different. And then it says, and has passed through a greater and more perfect tent, which no human hand has made, for it was no part of this world of ours. Now, I understand that to be his body. It was not with goats or calves' blood, but with his own blood, that he entered once and for all, past tense, into the Holy of Holies, having won for us men eternal reconciliation with God, past tense. And if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a burnt heifer were, when sprinkled on the unholy, sufficient to make the body pure, then how much more will the blood of Christ himself, who by his eternal spirit offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice, past tense, purify our conscience, present, from dead works, that you may serve the living God. Now, in these few verses here, we have this notion that Christ has already done these things, and we have this notion that we are already now able to achieve the virtuous life, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, by developing the four cardinal virtues of discernment, self-control, courage, and right judgment, so that we will purify our conscience from dead works, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice unto God. That's what I see in these verses. Then we go on, and it says here in verse 15, Christ is consequently the mediator of an entirely new covenant, already a mediator of already a new covenant. Remember, the new covenant was made old when Jeremiah said it was old. That's when the new covenant was first made old, when they were told by Jeremiah that a new would be coming. Christ is consequently the mediator of an entirely new covenant, already past tense, already done, having the power by virtue of his death to redeem transgressions, already he has this power, committed under the first covenant to enable those who obey God's call to enjoy the promises already of the eternal inheritance. Now, this is great here. It says, for as in the case of a will, the agreement is only valid after death. While the testator lives, the will has no legal power. Okay, so the will and testament of Jesus Christ that he gave us during his earthly ministry was empowered at his death as every man's will and testament is empowered at their death. If I die today, my will and testament immediately is empowered, and then in a, and execute an exec, how do I say that word? Uh, executor? I'm, I'm missing that word a little bit. I'm sorry for that. Do you know that word? Executor? Does so, that work? Yes, there you go. Thank you. He then is responsible for the application of what my will has said I want done. He's an administrator of my will. Now, that's what the apostles were. The will and testament of Jesus Christ as he gave during his ministry, during his three years, three and a half years preaching and teaching, was empowered at his death. It came to pass and was fully enabled. It had legal power at his death. That's what the story of the Uh, testator lives and then when he dies the will has legal power 
it was empowered at his death. And the apostles then became the, I can't say that word still, the administrators of the will and testament of Jesus Christ. So going back to the already but not yet, it's a matter of degrees. I'm not suggesting that at the death of Jesus, everything was done and nothing yet would unfold. I'm suggesting that everything was done in the sense of the will and testament of Jesus Christ now came into force, full force, and that the administrators of that will and testament, his apostles, would then make in the world all those things that he had talked about real. They would bring them to pass. They had no ability to bring them to pass if the will and testament wasn't already of legal standing. So in verse 18, it says, And indeed, we find that even the first covenant of God's will was not put into force without the shedding of blood. For when Moses, and we're back to Moses, right, indicating that the tent was the tent in the wilderness. For when Moses had told the people every command of the law, he took calves and goats' blood with water and scarlet wool and sprinkled both the book and all the people with a sprig of hyssop, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Moses also sprinkled with blood, the tent itself, again relating that tent not to the tabernacle standing in Jerusalem, but to the one in the wilderness that was made old when Jeremiah spoke it so, and all the sacred vessels. And you will find in the law, almost all cleansing is made by means of blood, as the common saying has it, no shedding of blood, no remission of sins. Now, here we are in verse number 23, and I want to take one second here, I want to pull this up. Okay, So now verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, what do you think we're talking about here? What are these heavenly things that must be purified with blood? And I said this in your, in your sight as well. Jesus didn't take a pail of blood up into the heavenly realm. So what heavenly things do you think were sprinkled with blood? It was the new tabernacle. And what is the new tabernacle? But the body of Christ himself. It was the body of Christ, the new tabernacle, that was sprinkled with blood as he became the propitiation for our sins on the cross. Verse 24 says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, that tent which was already old and gone, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, this is not the ascension. The greatest signal event of all history was God becoming man. But it says here, he entered into heaven itself. This is the spirit God entering the body and becoming our salvation. This heaven here being spoken of is Christ himself, the body of the Son of God. In order then to appear in the presence of God for us, what presence? His presence here before God for us, where he could actually enact the role of the high priest. This heaven was the incarnation of Christ himself. There's no more holy place than that tabernacle in which God became incarnate. Christ is the most holy place. And 25 says, not that he should offer himself often. Okay, well, if he entered into heaven to offer himself for us, what does verse 25 continue? He's saying where he offered himself, here in this earthly realm. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the most holy place every year with blood of another. So what realm did Christ enter into that most holy place? 
It must be in that realm where Christ could actually offer himself. Yes, in what realm could he sprinkle blood on the mercy seat? Again, in the realm where he could actually shed the blood of the sacrifice. So it is in this world, in this earthly realm, that our Lord entered the most holy place, the body God made for this very purpose. Through the incarnation via the virgin birth, sprinkled the blood through the cross on his body, the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the mercy seat, for the sins of the whole world. How then would he have to suffer often since the foundation? But how many incarnations were there really? Just one. And watch what comes next. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared. He's appearing before God in heaven, in this new tabernacle, in the earthly realm, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he's appeared this one time to put sin away through his sacrifice on the cross. Specifically, according to what we're reading here in Hebrews chapter 9, through the gruesome, bloody death on the cross, which was the sprinkling of the blood in the new tabernacle on the mercy seat in the most holy place. This is what we mean when we say Christ is our everything. Christ is our all in all. And then we get into verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to, to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin or salvation. And what do these verses mean? It is appointed for man to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ died once, the atonement, in order to save us from the judgment where the atoning blood would be necessary. So this is the pattern laid out here in verses 27 and 28. And the pattern remains in place yet today. For each of us die once. And after this, we face our personal judgment. This means that if we put our faith in the atonement of Christ at the cross during this life, if we enter into that most holy place and bow at the mercy seat, then he will appear to us a second time in our personal judgment, apart from sin, for our salvation. And this is exactly what happened in form to that final generation. And the function of that form applies to each continuing generation. So these verses don't stand apart from the rest of Hebrews chapter 9, but they complete the rest of chapter 9. Now, hmm. once this is understood, then what happens is we have Jesus, and I want to read this to you if I might. We have Jesus, uh, I want to pull something up here, this is important. We have Jesus then, i got to get another spot. We have Jesus uh uh, okay, let me not get distracted. We have Jesus uh, in at the cross when he when he says it is finished, and you quoted this earlier. So when he says it is finished, he's suggesting what he's saying is the atonement is finished. That's what we're talking about here. The atonement is finished, and what happens then, according to the early and historic church, a phrase I use often, is that. Christ immediately then, by the power of that atonement, of that completed atonement, descended into hell and did those things in that image of the early church that we know as the, what I told you to look up as the Anastasis. The title of that image is the harrowing of hell. So that blood was instantly powerful. The efficacy of that blood was instantaneous. That's what it means. It is finished. And that's why the veil was torn in two from the top down, because 
at the moment that he said it is finished and he left his body on the cross, the atonement was complete. And you say that in the concept of the Day of Atonement, Christ has to come forth out of the Holy Holies. That's what he did. The Scripture teaches us that Christ's Spirit left his body. Well, that's him leaving the Holy of Holies and our acknowledgement that God has accepted the sacrifice. And immediately then he goes down into hell and he frees the captive saints. Now, there is a homily from the 4th century A.D., so it was written between 300 and 400 A.D., which was always read on Holy Saturday, which is the day that is the fulfillment of the High Holy Day of the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Good Friday is Passover. That's the day of the first resurrection. Holy Saturday is the fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the High Holy Day. And then Christ's resurrection, which could simply not have happened if the atonement hadn't been accepted. That's a reality. He couldn't have risen his body from the dead if the atonement hadn't been accepted. That's the fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits. It's not the fulfillment of resurrection. It's the fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits, which proves, it's the living proof that God exists. If somebody says you can't prove that God exists, the answer is sure you can. If you can prove the resurrection, then you can prove that God exists. Now, here's the homily, and it goes like this. And I'm going to read this, and then, Michael, I'll stop. It says, what is happening? This is the homily they read on Holy Saturday. Today there is a great silence over the earth, a great silence and stillness, a great silence because the king sleeps. The earth was in terror and was still because God slept in the flesh and raised up those who were sleeping from the ages. God has died in the flesh, and the underworld has trembled. Truly, he goes to seek out our first parent like a lost sheep. He wishes to visit those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He goes to free the prisoner Adam and his fellow prisoner Eve from their pain. He who is God and Adam's son. The Lord goes into them holding his victorious weapon, his cross. When Adam, the first created man, sees him, he strikes his breast in terror and calls out to all, My Lord, be with you all. And Christ in reply says to Adam, and with your spirit. And grasping his hand, he raises him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you life. I am your God, who for your sake became your son, who for you and your descendants now speak and command with authority those in prison. Come forth, and those in darkness have light, and those who sleep, rise. I command you, awake, sleeper. I have not made you to be held a prisoner in the underworld. Arise from the dead. I am the life of the dead. Arise, O man, work of my hands. Arise, you who were fashioned in my image. Rise, let us go hence. For you and me and I and you, together we are one undivided person. For you, I, your God, became your son. For you, I took the master. I, the master, took on your form. That you, slave, that, I'm sorry, let me read that again. For you, I, your God, became your son. For you, I, the master, took on your form. That of slave. For you, I who am above the heavens came on earth and under the earth. For you, O man, I became as a man without help, free among the dead. For you who left a garden, I was handed over to the Jews from a garden and crucified in a garden. Look at the spittle on my face, which I received because of you, in order to restore you to that first divine inbreathing at creation. See the blows on my cheeks, which I accepted in order to refashion your distorted form to my own image. See the scourging up my back, 
which I accepted in order to disperse the load of your sins, which was laid upon your back. See my hands nailed to the tree for a good purpose, for you who stretched out your hand, tree for an evil one. I slept on the cross and a sword pierced my side for you who slept in paradise and brought forth thee from your side. My side healed the pain of your side. My sleep will release you from your sleep in Hades. My sword has checked the sword which was turned against you. But arise, let us go hence. The enemy brought you out of the land of paradise. I will reinstate you, no longer in paradise, but on the throne of heaven. I denied you the tree of life, which was a figure. But now I myself am united to you. I who am life. I posted the cherubim to guard you as they would slaves. Now I make the cherubim worship you as they would God. The cherubim throne has been prepared. The bears are ready and waiting. The bridal chamber is in order. The food is provided. The everlasting houses and rooms are in readiness. The treasure of good things have been opened. The kingdom of heaven has been prepared before the ages. Amen and amen. And that's the homily they read on Holy Saturday. So what I wanted to share today is, historically, the church has taught that the Day of Atonement was fulfilled here, not the judgment portion, the blood sacrifice portion at the cross. We covered Hebrews chapter 9 in the way that Christostom from the early church would, in the way that Spurgeon would, in the way that Luther would, in the way that the Protestant reformers would, in the way that Catholics would. We covered Hebrews chapter 9 to talk about who really was, where this, who really was the tabernacle, what the veil was. There's a whole lesson we can do on the veil, what the temple was, what the veil was, what heaven was, what this incarnation was all about, what the sprinkling of the blood on the Holy of Holies was all about, what it means it is finished, that we could now enter the Holy of Holies. The efficacy of that blood being immediate, which Christ proved as he descended into hell, which he proved when he, as the first fruits, rose from the dead and then ascended up into heaven by the power of that blood already accepted and took those people up with him to wait under the altar until 70 AD and the end would come. And so my difference with you is not there wasn't something already and there wasn't something not yet, but a matter of degrees. The already is far more powerful and the not yet is a, is an, is a, uh, is a uh, outcome of what happened in the already. And so that's where I find the difference at. And for me, preterism is, under these terms, understood at the cross. And when we understand preterism at the cross, we turn ourselves back there and we open ourselves to all these things. Because now what happens is, when you watch what happens in that 40-year period, what you see is the form of what we should have in function. What were they doing? They were growing in the virtues so that they could be prepared to receive the end result. Just like you and I, having been saved at the cross and atoned for at the cross, should be growing in the virtuous life, just like you talked about on Sunday. We should be growing in the virtuous life so that when we pass from this life to the next and face our own version of that second resurrection, we'll be welcomed into heaven, having been already approved through the blood. Hmm. Well, I have to say, Paul, uh, thank you for a lot of the resources you shared and um, the clarity that you you know you brought from your perspective of Hebrews nine. I um, 
you know, I, I do want to say one thing that's very important is it should never be our intent as uh, brethren, especially, to misrepresent one another. And, you know, I see that a lot of times happening, and my goal is to, to never do that. That's why I was like, you know, let me reach out to Paul and bring him on, and, you know, we could talk about these things. So, uh, you know, I, I really do appreciate it because one thing I will say is as you explained Hebrews 9 this morning, I have to admit my perspective of what you believed was entirely different. So, you know, now that you were able to explain and you gave us a, a, a view of how you're reading Hebrews 9 and how the historic church has viewed Hebrews 9, it's from that moment forward that we could begin to discuss possible differences and so forth. You know, I again, I, my goal was to never misrepresent you. And, you know, I, I do I, – what I do believe, as you have went through your presentation this morning, is uh, I do see where – even starting from the beginning, you know, I, as you know, I kind of dabble. We'll say I dabble in covenant creation, and uh, you know, I, I do see some things there. I obviously, I don't. I'm one of those people. I don't sell the whole, uh, you know, the whole boat, so to speak, for um, for any doctrine of man. However, uh, you know, I, I do believe these things need to be investigated. And what I did see from the discussion this morning is that what we really need is a telling of the whole story. You know, and I wish we could do that in an hour. However, that's impossible. However, I believe that some of the distinctions and the differences I might have with your view or I might have with the historic witness of the church comes from a telling of the whole story. And uh, honestly, that's my goal. You know, one of the things I'm looking to do here in March at our church is to go through the whole narrative of Scripture and, um, you know, really begin to understand, because I do believe some of the things that you were mentioning might will be drawn out as we endeavor to go through the whole of the message, you know, what I call the full counsel of God, or what Scripture calls the full counsel of God. And, uh, you know, I believe that's important. What I do want to do, uh, before I let you go, is I wanted to ask you one question. And this is coming from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, and it also goes back to Ephesians 1, 14. And uh, it's speaking about the eternal inheritance. If you could just... Uh, in you know a very brief moment, give me an explanation of your understanding of the internal eternal inheritance. Okay, so Hebrews nine fifteen. Yes, is that correct? Okay. Um, uh, so Christ is consequently the mediator of an entirely new covenant, having the power by virtue of his death to redeem transgressions committed under the first covenant to enable those who obey God's call to enjoy the promises of the eternal life. Okay, so. Um, What's interesting, I can explain this very easily, I think. Um, as I said in the opening here, the already but not yet, as you understand first century, I say we don't give enough to the already and we give too much to the not yet. After 70 AD, what I think happens to preterists, modern-day preterists, is they give too much to the already, and not enough to the night. And that's my answer to your question is we don't have everything in this life. I understand we have everything in regard to all the work that Christ needs to do to return the world, not, and it's not return the world because the world was created as it was at the beginning, not to ever return to that, but in order to get us to the regeneration where we would have something new and different that never existed prior to the cross. So the regeneration brought us to a place that was different than ever existed. And that place that existed now since the regeneration, we don't want to give too much to the already and fail to give enough to the not yet. And so the way I described that is if we walk through a 
cancer ward at a children's hospital. It's hard not to understand what I mean by saying, let's not give too much to the already and not enough to the not yet. And when we say that, I say, when we do get past this life into the next, that's the not yet in our understanding. So the form of that last generation is functional in every preceding generation. And that's vital because what it means is it provides the immediacy of our need to be preaching and teaching the gospel. Because functionally, we have the exact same situation. Just like James, or just like uh, Jude writes in his epistle that, boy, he's got to tell you right away because the end is coming. Well, every one of us could get run over by a truck today. And so the immediacy of our need for Jesus is as vital today, functionally, as it was for them in form. And so I would simply suggest when we look at the eternal inheritance, we recognize the not yet that still remains and how glorious it is beyond anything that we can have in this physical world, which does not in any way, shape, or form diminish the already which we have in this regeneration. It isn't, the regeneration isn't a recreation of Adam's paradise because in Adam's paradise, one sin could cost humanity its life. In the regeneration, no one sin of any man can cost anyone anything because we have a mediator with God, the man Christ Jesus. The regeneration is a far better place to live, and recognizing the not yet still today does not diminish the incredible beauty of the already in this world. Does that answer your question? All right. Yes, I, I, I appreciate that. It, it um Again, you know, I do believe there's a lot of details. You know, the reason why I asked you that was um, – in my understanding of what the eternal inheritance was, and obviously I will, I will, I would explain that a bit different. Um, I, want, I want to make sure that I understood what you were positing, and, and I do understand what you're saying, and I agree with you that I do believe that there's probably a lot more emphasis on the not yet when we're looking at it from that perspective that than there should be. You know, there should be a lot more emphasis on. And one area I definitely agree with you is we see in Ephesians how the um, saints had been raised up in heavenly places that they were already seated in that blessing. Um, in that transitionary period that many people harp on and so forth. But um, we definitely do see that they were raised up, and I do believe that the cross provided um, full atonement, you know, in, in the sense of a believer's life. I, I'm in full agreement with you there, and I also agree with an appreciation for the historic church um, and the witness of the church throughout the centuries. I believe uh, somebody reached out to me actually the past week and asked me if I could explain to them the difference between solo scriptura and sola scriptura, and obviously, you know, solo scriptura being a very fallacious way to uh, understand scripture, um, that, you know, we shouldn't understand the historic witness of the church or the context of the documents and so forth. So, you know, I believe that. I do believe, um, you know, my church is going through the Catholic catechism in our studies. I do believe in the power of the historic church, and I believe that's something that, sadly, many people have pushed to the side, you know, this postmodern um, mindset that we push it any other type of wisdom to the side, and we only want our interpretation or our view. I believe that's very unhealthy, and that's why I can definitely agree with you on the appreciation for the historic witness. And uh, I thank you for that. I thank you for drawing that out. Um, with that, you know, again, the, the show is actually intended to be an hour long, so uh, I didn't get to get into much of the details. I want to apologize to the audience and to you that um, I didn't really think – I thought an hour would be uh, much more time than 60 minutes, go figure, and uh, <laughs> it didn't work out that way. 
So uh, yeah. while I do want to thank you for coming on today, and uh, what I'm going to be doing, if you hopefully you'll be in discussion with me. I hope this doesn't end our discussion, and uh, we'll continue to kind of detail some of these things. One of my goals is to kind of bring Don into the discussion because I know me and him, we've gotten into quite a few discussions on atonement, and I would like to see maybe him respond to some of the things we talked about today, and I'm going to see if I can make that happen in the next couple of weeks. And uh, hopefully we'll continue great it. discussion. All right, Paul. Well, uh, again, thank you for coming on, and I'm going to look into getting some of the resources you mentioned in your books and uh, maybe get involved with that spiritual fitness program and uh, hopefully push that out to many other people in the Internet world. All right. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate you bringing me on, and I want to commend you for attempting to bring these differences to light in a friendly manner, and I think that is uh, highly commendable. All right. Hey, all glory to God. Amen. Yes. Amen to that. All right, brother. You have a blessed day. All right. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right. And that was Paul Rakowitz joining us on Bible Beacon Broadcast. Again, I apologize that I ran over the time this morning. Um, I just want to let you know that you can go and look on Amazon and find Paul um, Paul Rakowitz's resources, The Pearl, and as well as The Virtuous Life, which sounded like an amazing book that I definitely want to get my hands on, and check out spiritualfitnessprogram.com. Get involved with that. We need to foster great discussion, and as you heard me bring out in that, I do believe that there are some differences that can be hashed out as we begin to go through the full narrative of Scripture. So, you know, Paul had mentioned he disagrees with covenant creation. I believe starting at the creation and understanding the story full through Scripture, following the frame of reference of the Scriptures and of the original people that these uh, mysteries and oracles were given to, could shed clarity, and I believe they will shed clarity on these details. So that's what we're looking to do in the next couple weeks. Again, um, I'm going to go about pestering Don Preston to join me on the broadcast, possibly speak about atonement, and bring a lot of these things to light from a different perspective. So I I urge you, listen to this podcast again if you need to, and um, for the next couple weeks, I'm really looking to talk about atonement and understand how indeed the promises of God were... uh, fully given to the believers and what that means and how we should be living out that, as Paul brought out, that function in our lives today. So again, I thank you. Join me in prayer, and we will end in song. And tune in next Tuesday, every Tuesday at 8 a.m. to Bible Beacon Broadcast, as I will be your host, Pastor Michael Miano. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory, Lord God, and I thank you for Brother Paul Rakowitz, that he would come on the show and we would be able to have great discussion, friendly discussion, Lord, edifying discussion for your glory, Lord, into these mysteries, Lord. We thank you for your word that gives us this truth. I thank you for all that you accomplished, Lord God, at the cross, and all that you accomplished through that transitionary period, and all that you accomplished in the events of AD 70, as well as what you're accomplishing in and through the church throughout the ages, Lord. We give you all the glory. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your spirit, Lord. And I thank you for the the witness of believers, Lord, that continues to give glory to you as we diligently search out your truth, Lord. Lord, I pray that you continue to build us up and edify us, that we might live out the greatest commandment, Lord God, and that we might continue to glorify you all in all. Lord, we give you all our praise in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Again, thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week. Happy Thanksgiving. And I look forward to discussing these things in more detail next Tuesday at 8 a.m. For now, I'm going to go and join the wild things. Amen? You should too.
church in the wild, I've chosen this lifestyle. You ever met my friends? Porn stars, dope dealers, they like, why you chill with them? I thought you was a Christian. Yeah, I'm on that team, but I'm with them because my life's the only Bible that they've ever seen. So wanna be an earshot from the church bell. I wanna win souls near gunshots in the worst hell. Selling them Christ became a curse for they sin. With my words and my works, they won't come in. I'm bringing church to them. Yeah, that's why I live where I live. They say you acting crazy, that ain't no place to raise your kid. But um, if 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 we ain't living it, who else gone? Sean, what a family supposed to look like instead of them broken homes. Gotta be living stones around where they getting stoned. Live to know him, die to make him known till he take us home. Let's go. I wanna go Christians love me. I walk like Jesus. Now they want to judge me. Ain't it funny? I'm ducking stones thrown from the Pharisees. Gospel of peace upon my feet like a paraclete. Walking with the paraclete that's Greek for the spirit. They say the wild things that eat you up. Who shall I fear when God is walking with me? If I die, that's a win. That's the seed of the church. First I get to be with him and we so undefeated. Like Haynes made our sneakers. I had beef with Jesus and my sinner got deleted. So I gotta go and speak it. To those who really need it, let the gospel off the leash. Go and be with the beast. I want Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.